Good morning, Rabbi. So we're going we're gonna to be learning this morning for the following yard sites. Thank you so much to Judy and Lutaigu, who are sponsoring it. Nishmas Avraham Yezer, Ben Yosef, Mr. Abram Klempner, the, um, Judy's, uh, Judy's father, whose yard site will be tonight. tonight itself, which should be a message and alias Neshama for him. We also want to thank Dr. Paul, Gro- uh, Dr. Paul Weinberg, who is sponsoring Lelu Nishmas, Leah Gitabas, Shlomo Mordechai, the 30th yard site of his mother, which is Boy Bayom today, it should be continued alias Neshama for her. And also want to thank Dr. Yeager, who's sponsoring the Nishmas, Avram Yoda Ben um, Azriel, um, that is Rochelle's father's yard site, um, which will be this week as well. And Lele Nishmas Chaim Eliezer Ben Elchonon, a cousin of Dr. Yeager's, um, who, we're, who we're going to be thinking about in a continued alias Neshama for him. Let us, let us learn. We have... We've been going through a bit of a, a, uh, a journey, meeting some of the minds. When we, we hear ideas, we read the Chumash and we hear these different ideas, it's, it's sometimes important to, uh, to know who, who we're talking about. You know, we hear a vort from Rashi, from the Rashbam, from the Ramban, and we, we say, oh yeah, you know, they're all sitting at the same table, you know, you know producing vorts for us. No, that's not exactly how it worked. There's a, there's a, there's a much bigger picture, so we've spent a little time. We looked a little bit at the Ramban. We looked a little bit at the Ibn Ezra. We looked a little bit at the Rashbam. We saw the different worldviews that they expressed and espoused. What we're going to do now is we're going to now focus on Rabbeinu Bechaye. Rabbeinu Bechaye, Ben Asher. This is important to know because there were two Rabbeinu Bechayes. And it's, not, and it's important or Rabbeinu Bachye, depending on the pronunciation. Um, we're, it's important to uh, realize that they are not the same. So for instance, the Ava Rabbeinu Bachye or Bachaye was the author of which Sefer? The book, The Duties of the Hearts, was authored by Rabbeinu Bachaye Ibn Pakuda. And that was, in fact, already um, almost two centuries before this Rabbeinu Bachaye, although they lived in the same area in Spain. But nonetheless, it's important to notice that sometimes when we hear the word Rabbeinu Bachaye, we should ask ourselves, is it Rabbeinu Bachaye Ibn Pakuda or Ben Asher? Just, uh, just worth, worthwhile appreciating. The one on the Torah... The Rabbeinu Bechayi we never know on the Torah is in fact Rabbeinu, uh, Rabbeinu Bechayi Ben Asher, and that's the one we're going to be focusing on now. It is interesting that he lived um, in the 13th century, 13th to 14th century in fact, and he lived in Saragossa in Spain, in the Iberian Peninsula. And we, the, what, the advantage we have of looking at this, at this, uh, at this moment in, t- in history, is the fact that he is in fact almost two centuries after already the beginning of the Rishon and the beginning of the medieval commentators. So that means to say he has an advantage because on his bookshelf is likely a manuscript of Rashi and the Rashbam and the Ibn Ezra. And he is a Talmud, in fact, of Rash, the Rashba. He is a Talmud of one of the great halachic decisors of the time in Spain. He is a grand Talmud, therefore, of the Ramban, so that means to say that when he is sitting down to, at his table to say what is he going to produce, he already has what a lot of the Mepharshim in front of him. Which means not only does he have that information, and if he diverges from it, he's doing so purposefully. That's one thing we should realize. But also it means to say that he therefore also has the methodology in front of him, which he is going to either marshal, adopt, or reject. And therefore we are going to see a more complex pirush of the, the Rabbeinu Bechayi than any of the Mepharshim we've seen beforehand. We're going to see perspectives, and we'll call it modalities of operation, which are not necessarily found in the earlier Mepharshim, because he has this perspective. He's a really remarkable individual. Interestingly enough, the Rashba, his teacher, 
his, uh, his, uh, his, uh, his science or paradigm of education, wrote primarily on what topics? Anybody familiar? Gemara. Wrote mainly on the Gemara. The Rashba has a, a set of svarim on the Gemara. And he also wrote on Halacha. So Rashba famously has Torah Sabayas, as uh, a very, very incisive dis- um, halachic description on, uh, on a lot of aspects that, relate, that, are put, uh, that pertain to Yoradeh specifically. Um, it is interesting that his student, Rabbeinu B'chaya, did not write on those topics necessarily. He was a darshan in the city of Sargosa. And interestingly enough, most of his works, in fact, were on machshava, on philosophical thoughts. So, for instance, his book on the Torah is on, uh, on machshava in general. He wrote another sefer called Kad HaKemach, very famously, a 50-step process of understanding Jewish theology. He also wrote another book called, um, which was actually attributed incorrectly to the Ramban, Shulchan Arba. Um, and um, he wrote a number of these different stories, but all of them, Soiva Samachos, which is a pirush on Eov. But you can see that he took a bit of a different approach to his teacher. Nonetheless, he quotes his teacher many times. He quotes a number of his teachers uh, many, many times in his introduction. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at how he explains himself, how he justifies himself. And then we're going to take a few examples of where he puts those ideas into motion. He's going to be the first person who's going to start developing the notion of what we, what we will later on call paradise. That a four-tiered approach to understanding the Torah. Very, very beautiful way of looking at it. So we're going to take a look at some of his, of his introduction. Not all of it. What I did to make it thing, things a little bit simpler is on page two, I put an overview of the ten sections I broke up his introduction into. And we're going to, so as you can see, there's going to be a, a movement where really the main focus is going to be section eight, the four realms of learning Torah. And we're going to just do a quick, a quick synopsis of the earlier sections to get there. So let's, let's jump straight into our introduction. This is, if you go, to, um, if, you, if you flip to the, the pages, to after page seven, to pay, it should be page eight, but it's a different pagination. Here's where we're going to, here's what we're going to do. The first section we're going to really skip, it's really his introduction to, uh, to, to thanking HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and he says, just one line in that is just, just to understand the poetic brilliance. He doesn't need to use too many words to describe this, but in the second line, I underlined the line which it says, do you have, do you have the underlines, by the way? Yeah. You do? Okay, good. I just want to know at which point I put the underlines in. So again, we're on the actual, we're, uh, we're after page 7. It's uh, the bottom of the page, actually, it says uh, page 18, actually. Where this says, Psicha on the top of the page. It says, Introduction on the top of the page. <coughs> And in the, it's all, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's Menukad, it has the, the, the Nukudos over here, and he says, in the second line, just in his introduction, I thought it was a beautiful line, he says, Nimtzala kol, v'nistar mikol. Hashem is found to all, but hidden from everyone. That, 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 that's, that's the way he describes Hashem. Hashem is the, is the being who is hidden and found to everyone at the same time. That's a, and, and that depends on really our choice. So if we decide we're going to find him, he's there for us. But if we don't, he's hidden from everyone. So that's, that's the, the starting point. Now it's in his introduction as well. Let's go into the next section, section two. We're going to uh, take a look at this. What he does now in this section, in section two, is a very brief synopsis of the Sheshes Yemei Bereshis, the six days of creation, leading to the creation of humankind, which is therefore where he takes on, it takes off from because we're, 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 we're in fact part of that, that project. So it says, we're going to start, this is line five in his introduction. Again, this is the area which looks like Menukad. It says, it says, Pesicha. At the very bottom of the page on the right, it says 18. Section two. Shechlal olama b'yamim shisha. He shisha. He included his world in six days. And from ex nilo, he 
So he set apart this, um, his creation. So he, uh, he uh, created this very, very, we'll call it subtle um, foundation, which is hidden, and from it he, he, he pulled out the rest of creation. At the beginning, he created the source of light, which would be hidden for the righteous at the end of time. So there's these two forms of light, and to understand them, it is very deep. Okay, so you see, he's already hinting, these are deep waters. It looks like, you might, it might, looks like a little pond, but understand much more in terms of light. It wasn't as if we have, oh, there's the sun and there's the moon. And, and that was even later on, but there wasn't even the source of light. There's something very deep going on here. Bashani on the second day, again, he's making a verb of the word rakia. He spreads out this firmament to divide between the waters. Because the water wasn't finished, that's why it wasn't called kitov. And he goes on each day, he describes what the, what the outcome of each day was. For our purposes, we're going to now skip to the sixth day. Okay, so this is the top of the next page over here. It says Bayes on the top of the page. This is where it says in the underline, Bashishi. On the sixth day, Nivra Adam Ve'ezrai, humankind and the helper were created. In order to continue the, the, the humanity, he gave it a, a blessing. And with humanity, all of creation was finished. Kodmuloi kol sha'ar minei shvalim. All lower forms of creations were before him. Vuhu haya acharon b'maaseyu la'roz ki kol po'al Hashem l'maaneyu. Why was this creation last? To show that everything was leading up to this moment. Okay, so you may say to yourself, oh wait a second, the most important things come first after all. And he says, no, the most important things come last. That's where we are. So now he's, so to speak, he's talked about all of creation. He's unpacked that very briefly in a very short synopsis. We're now at humankind. And now he wants to show us that humankind is the most important part of this equation. How so? Here's how he explains it. Therefore, our sages gave us a beautiful parable to understand this. By the way, you notice, of course, like the Ibn Ezra, every line rhymes. It must be exceedingly difficult. Exceedingly difficult to be able to convey such profound ideas when every two, every every semi-brief you have a rhyme. Okay, but nonetheless, he's doing that, and if we get the right cadence, we can feel his cadence. That he there's a king, and there's always he's usually in seventy-five percent of all parables there's a king, and in this one there is a king, and he has a. Oh, just keep on. Thank you. So uh, it's still rhyme though, right? There you go. So he had uh, he had a, 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 a king who sets up a table full of delicacies. were called Sarah buys his skin and he set up the, all the needs of the house. Then he called his uh, this uh, this uh, this helper this, this this attendant, right? He says why did he call the shoshvin afterwards why did he call this attendant afterwards because he wanted everything to be ready once this this guest once this attendant would enter so therefore every all the work was done before and you know sometimes that feeling when you have a shabbos guest which is unexpected and you haven't quite the house isn't quite 
right? So that's not what Hashem wanted. He wanted to set the table to make sure that when the Shoshvin, so to speak, now notice it's this interesting dichotomy. On the one hand, the attendant is his attendant, right? So the attendant is subservient to him. But on the other hand, the, the, the servant is meant to be his uh, protege. So there's this tension of preparation for and also attendance to. Which is which he is uh, which is embeddedness. And if he is the end of the creation, but he was the beginning of the thought process before it started, right? So this is the blueprint. The point was to over here to, is to create a, uh, an operations room. Happens to be we needed the foundation and the concrete and the roofing and this electricity and the heating, and we needed the, uh, and we needed the internet connection and the table and right. But at the end of the day, we wanted the control room, right? And that was why all of that came in once we finally plugged in the plug and we uh, and, and we set up the operation. Therefore, that is that is the end of the day, which is what the creation was. Okay, good. So this, this is all the preamble, as you can see. We're getting to this. He's, 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 he said thank you to Hashem. He's talked about the six days of creation. He's explained why humanity comes at the end of the six days of creation. And Tala, now we have humanity. So what's human, human uh, humanity supposed to be doing? Now that the table's set, now we've entered the room. What are we doing with this? This is in section four. The, the point of creation is to know Hashem and to bless Him. To sanctify Him, to, to unite Him. Unite means to say... That everything that happens is attributed to him, even the parts which don't look like they're so much connected to him. Okay, there, there, that's what he says. Now, so how do we do that? So we know the point of creation is humanity. We are humanity. We're here. The world is the table set for us. Everything seems to be working all right. And now we have to recognize Hashem. So how do we do that exactly? He says in section 5, Without learning Torah, there's no possibility of serving Hashem. This is a very important rule, and, that, and this is sometimes something we lose today in a postmodern reality where everybody has a narrative, right? Everybody's entitled to their own narrative. The objective reality is a sliding scale today. And everybody feels, I feel, I feel this is the right thing to do. People feel that their, their inner compass is, the, is, is going to take them through the storms of life. And it says the Rabbeinu Bechaye, not quite. It is true, innate health, there is a lot of answers within ourselves, but if we do not have some external form of knowledge. If there's no way, if, there's no, if, we're not, if we're not actually adopting ideas from outside of ourselves, there is no possibility that we're going to weather that storm. We'll end up in Hawaii, <laughs> right, on our canoe. Right, we're not, we're, not, we're not going anywhere fast. We need to have some sort of objective standard outside of ourselves. And this is, this is so important today, because today everybody, everybody feels that they have their opinion and their narrative and their direction, and if I feel it's right, it should be right. And even people who are wrong have narratives. This is, this is not the way it works. He gives an interesting example over here. Let's just see if, uh, where, where he puts it. Let's go to a few lines more. He says, A person's not going to understand his creator or his commandments. If you don't know it, you're not going to see him. If you do, then you're going to, you're going to live in his shadow. Um, um, his, uh, well, let's see where this is. Oh, he gets into the mushroom in the next section. I just, just to, just to perhaps phrase Rabbi Machai in a different way. Is it possible to be good without the Torah? Is it possible to be a good human being without the Torah? Yes. The answer is yes, it is possible to be a good human being without the Torah. Is it likely you're going to get there? The answer is no. Because, here's the, here's the deal. There, there, there are 613 commandments, right? So Hashem is once of Israel, 613, seven from the nations of the world. These are, the, these are the, the necessary prerequisites. Do we get to those without studying them? The answer is, is Lord of the Flies, right? Meaning to say, is that we, if we ri- and arrive on the island ourselves and we have no, no system of understanding logic or morals or, uh, or expectations, then society devolves, generally speaking. 
Right? That's just one, one version of reality. And another way of saying it is perhaps this, the, the, the following example. Um, Rabbi David Gottlieb of Yerushalayim says a very interesting perspective. He says, imagine that you're following. Imagine you're walking through a field, you know, walking, well, walking through the fields, and today it's harder to find property which isn't owned. But, you know, a few years ago it used to be that there, was, there were vast, vast areas of the territory which weren't owned. And you'd be walking through the fields and you come up to an apple tree, you see an apple, you take the apple off the apple tree and you eat it. At which point somebody jumps out from behind a tree with a shotgun and says, how dare you? How are you eating my fruit? And you said, how am I supposed to know this is your fruit? He says, There's a, there is a fence and a demarcation saying trespassers will be prosecuted. How could you come into our property, ignore my sign and out eat my apples? So I'm sorry, there was, there was no sign. I have to apologize. There, there, there was, simply was no fence. And the man says, there was a fence. Come and he takes you by the hand and he takes you back 50 feet. And he looks around and he starts looking very confused. And he walks 20 feet to the right and there's a fence. And 20 feet to the left and there's a fence. And it happens to be that the fence in the section that you're walking had disappeared. It fell down, it was knocked down, it was removed. Whatever it was, the builders forgot to put it there. You happened to innocently walk through the, you know, the, the 40 feet where there was no fence. And he apologizes you to, to you profusely. But at the same time, let's think about this. Are you a criminal for eating his apple? Yes. yes. Are you a criminal? Did you perform a criminal act by eating his apple? Yes. No. But are you responsible for the apple? Yes. Meaning, could you be held like, did you know there was a fence? No. The, the path you took, it's just show, you, you, But you committed a crime. Ah, so, the word there, now we're getting into, into semantics over here. Are you responsible for the apple? Yes. You ate his apple. Did you intentionally commit a crime? No. So here's the, here's the point. Is let's say, I don't notice the guardrails in life. I don't see the fences in life. But what, was it a criminal for me to know, not to know, the, to know that? When, by the, because of all the mistakes and the blunders I make because I've not taken the time to, read, to, to look at the fences? Well, if I had no opportunity of seeing the fence, then perhaps I'm innocent. But if I had the opportunity of seeing the fence and I missed it because I wasn't w willing to study it, right? I wasn't willing to look, learn about it. And the fact that I missed the fence, now, now there's a little bit of a gray scale here as to, towards the darker side as to how responsible I am for getting to eat those apples, right? So this is what the Rebbe Nebuchadnezzar is saying, is, is yes, it is, it is true, you could possibly innocently walk into somebody else's orchard and eat those apples and make mistakes in life. He says, but when you have the instruction manual, <laughs> it's very hard to explain that we, that we missed that. This is the sort of Rebbe Nebuchadnezzar starts off by saying. And he, in fact, he goes into a beautiful marshal in the sixth section over here. This is the next is, uh, is, is, um, is, is section, and he says the following. He says, isi, Because I have seen Yaldeo Olam I've seen the world, so to speak, he says that, like, listen to this interesting image. People who are worried, they're trapped in a net like fish, you know, sort of before they're pulled out of the sea. I've seen a lot of people just don't know Torah, and whether it be intentionally or not intentionally. There are people whose there's been a lot of work invested in them, but they're not invested a lot of work into themselves. Their soul is trapped in the, in the trap. Their head is, oh, I skipped a line. Again. There, so to speak, there's a, a signature or there's an imprint on their, on their onesh because of their actions. He says, imagine the following. You have a table and everybody's sitting around that table and everybody's focusing on their food and nobody ever looks up. If you go back, I think that he's connecting this to the original mashal. 
The king sets the table for his attendant. The whole world is ready. And imagine all the attendants come in. And they, all they do is they spend their time with their food, with their face in their trollant. Right? And he says the whole meal, all they're doing is trying to get their face closer and closer to that plate. And spending their time eating and eating and eating. He says that's how somebody, some people leave, lead their lives. They spend their entire time working on getting more trollant into their mouths. And that's the entire life without ever looking up. That's what the Bani Mechai says. Therefore, he goes on to say, he says, Al-Kain, Zochalti Vo'ira, in the section 7, the very bottom of the page, Ani B'chaye Ben Asher, I, B'chaye Ben Asher, I'm scared, B'chanti B'yakol Hevel, I know that there's nothing important in me, skipping to the underline on the next page, he says, Umibnezeh, Nikravti Ala Melacha HaGdola, Azoi Sanifla, Lechaber Chibu B'feresh HaTorah Noraa, B'rado Mitoich Gila, Mitoich Simcha Yira. He says, I, I don't know who I am. Do I really? Am I really worthy of this? But I see that nobody's getting it. People are stuck in their meals, so to speak. They're not learning external knowledge to be able to improve their lives. They're trapped in the net like fish. They're not going anywhere. So I feel like I need to say something, but, but uh, ultimately, who am I? I'm going to write this spiritual on the Torah. And he says, listen to this interesting tension of, of, of emotions. Ra'ada mitokila. Ra'ada is? Trembling in joy. Right, that's a takeoff on a pasuk. Mitoch simcha yira, and from this happiness, fear. So you're saying there's this, this I'm, I'm excited and terrified at the same time as I'm penning this. Going to the next line, underline, he says, Kilo karvala malacha zos loy aravli bi v'sibase yosi sochol ba'kiri arkiu mokomi. I'm not happy about what I'm doing because I recognize my place and I'm really not worthy of writing this book. And I'm not doing this because I want people to know me. Right? This, this is the opposite of anybody who's writing a book today, right? <laughs> today, if you think about it, I mean, there are people still contributing worthy books. There are a few people who are contributing. But the vast majority of people who are writing books today are writing it so they can say they wrote a book rather than for the public to have got, uh, received a book. Right? If you think about this, and, and he's saying, understand where I come in in this equation. And finally, in the last part of the section, I don't understand. I'm a boor. What can I do? I love the Torah, he says in the last underline. I have to do this. He says, I have within me that, that resonating, that loud neshama, which is, which is reverberating inside me, which was created on day one, which is now needs expression. I'm going to let it loose. I'm going to be able to express myself. So all of this, as you can see, is an introduction to his methodology. He's explained why humanity was created last in the creation, what the point of humanity is recognizing Hashem, the, method, the, the vehicle through which, which is the Torah, and the fact that people are not taking note of it, which is why he feels necessary to take the steps to help educate people. That's, that's, that's now his justification for writing the Sefer. Um, in, in great humility. And now we get to the section which is new. This is really, uh, up till now, we've got a sense of meeting him. But now, what is he doing which is unique when uh, there, is a, there is a lot which is unique over here? Um, I, do, I do want to take the moment just to, to take a break because I didn't have a chance to before and just to wish a mazel tov to Alan and Rabbi Steinmetz, who God willing will be celebrating the bris and the kriyas shame, God willing, of the twin, twin, uh, twin baby grandchildren and great grandchildren. Also, an opportunity to welcome General Amidror, who's joining us this morning. He did not want to be recognized, but, uh, but uh, who's staying at the Hellas, who's joining us. General Amidror is, is, has been the spokesperson for many of the reports and the, uh, has been the, the voice of not just uh, goodwill, but the voice of defending our values as the nation of Israel. And it is a pleasure to have you in the Shiorta this morning. So now let's, 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 let's start at the very beginning over here. Um, the following. 
Let's start with the methodology of the Brabbin Bechai, and let's try to take a few examples. Here's, here's how he does it. He says the following. He says, I know that there's... Now, just remember, let's take a step backwards to what we've been studying up to now. We looked at the Ibn Ezra, we looked at the Rashbam, and that, the struggle that they had, and they came out with different resolutions, is how do you reconcile what they call Pshat and then Chazal? Right? We saw they had different methodologies as to try to, 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 uh, to synthesize those two values, and they came up with very different ways of doing it. Rabbeinu Bechaye is now going to be able to, in a certain sense, he's not even troubled by tension. He's able to operate on multiple levels, and here's how he does it. He says the following. Um, he, I'm in the, this section 8 now. He says, There are four different ways that a person goes. He says there's four levels. There's Pshat, those people who run after Pshat. There are those who run after, who desire the Midrash. There are those who go in the intellectual direct direction. And there are those who are Benalia, those who are the ways of ascent, who look upwards. So he's going to explain how he's going to do this. Let's take a flip over the page over here, on the top of page hey or 22 at the bottom, <coughs> in which he says how he's going to embrace all of these four sections. What we'll do is, we'll do a section and take a look at an example where Rabbeinu Bechaye is utilizing this in his Pirush. Okay, that's, what we, that's our goal. This is the following on the top of the page. I want to divide my, my Pirush into four sections. I want each of these four sections to be complete. In the four steps of the ladder. They are the steps to get from the revealed to the hidden. Which is fascinating, which means to say, just to understand this, the Pshat is a necessary prerequisite to getting to the Kabbalah, to getting to the, to the d- deeper secrets of the Torah. You need to understand each step. You cannot skip a step here in his methodology. The first one is the, what we translate today is the simple explanation or explicit explanation. I will mention and God. Notice, by the way, is he, is he identifying himself with the Pshat? No. He's saying, I will guard it. I will preserve it. I will respect it. I'm not, that's not where he's peg, putting his tent. We'll see in a second where he does. Shom echtov mivchar deos rishonim. I will quote a summary of the most, the most lofty or the most chosen of those who came before me. Harabanim ha'adzirim, the great rabbis, the mo'ora gadol rabbeinu shlomo zal. Who is that? Rashi ha'patish ha'chazak, the strong hammer, rabbeinu chananel. V'kol echad mehem sinai v'oker arim. Each one of them is, these are two descriptions of people who learn Torah. One is Sinai as a repository of all knowledge, and Okerarim is a person who rips up mountains, who has incisive um, um, perspective, is able to, um, to, to, to delve into the logic to, to a great degree. He says, it's just a very beautiful description. He says, I'm going to quote them, and I'm going to quote them by name because I'm not going to put on somebody else's garments, right? And so you see something interesting over here, as opposed to, let's say, the Ibn Ezra, who would say the people who he doesn't necessarily identify with, he says, are wrong. He starts off by saying there's five ways of learning the Torah, and he dismisses the first four of them. Over here, the, the Rabbeinu Bechaya says, I will preserve the Pshat. I will preserve the Pshat, even though that's not where he's going to pitch his tent. Uh, it is an important prerequisite. Let's take an example of... The Rabbeinu Bechai operating in this modality. Um, yes, absolutely. In fact, 
In fact, it's, um, it is, it's not found in the regular Mikra Asgadalas, which is a, a pity. And part of the reason is because it is longer than a lot of the other Pirushim. But as an example, we have, this is a three-part set, which is the Moser Cook has the Rabbeinu Bachaye. And it is footnoted by none other than Rabbi Dr. Shuvel. No, not Rabbi I know we have seen that. Oh, Rabbi yeah, yeah, Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar, sure. He's very terse, he's very, there's very little of him in, in, in actually his Pirushat Torah, but you'll find him in the Torah Chaim, which is the, which is the Moser Rav Kook, um, explanation of the, um, which summarizes most of the Rishonim, and the Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar does appear there. But you're right, it, it is not so much. We're going to see a lot of him through others like the Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar as an example. Let's take a quick look at an example of the Rabbeinu Bachai operating on the Derech Hapshat. Just as an example from yesterday. Okay, so let's, let's now we're reversing in our packets to page 3. Okay, so we start off the parasha. The parasha says, Vayiyu chayei sara me'ashana ve'estrim shana ve'sheva shanim shanei chayei sara. Sarah lived for, um, for 100 years. She lived for 20 years. She lived for 7 years. These are the days of the life of Sarah. Says Rabbeinu Bachai, Al-Derech Apshat, he introduces his pirush with the first step of the ladder. He says in source 2, It is simply the way the Torah describes putting the word shana, differentiating each of the units. There simply are three different units. There's the, single, there's the digits, the single digits, there's the dual digits, and there's the triple digits. And most human beings are not made beyond that. So therefore, we, we, we will, uh, we're going to separate them by the word Shana. So therefore he says, don't get too excited, right? At this point in time, he's willing to say, that it is Pshad. If you look elsewhere in the Torah, we'll see the word Shana separates between the different gradations. So there's nothing more to say at this point in time. This is the Pshat, right? The Torah can exist in this level and you can live in this level and respectfully and appreciate that that's what it's saying. However, we go now back, if we can keep a finger there, let's go back to our introduction. This is again on page um, Hey in the introduction or 22 at the very bottom, where he says, Adere HaSheni, the second area, the second modality. He says, Boy Archiv Loshon, I will spend a lot of, I'll expand my mouth here. Boy Ate Ali, and that's where I'll place my tent. Okay, so he, he believes firmly in the second step of the ladder. Hashem is good to me. He says, I'm going to use this to talk about from the pulpit, so to speak. I'm, whenever I get opportunity, this is what I'm going to tell people. And in people's very difficult lives, this will give rest to people when they hear it. And, this is, and people will, will enjoy it, uh, the generation from generation. So he believes that there's more, so to speak, sweetness. There's more depth to the Midrash, and that's why he's going to spend a lot of time doing this. So as an example, let's go back now to Chaye Sarah. Although he has identified Chaye Sarah as, yes, Shana is a natural separation. However, he's going to carry on to say in the next paragraph, in this part on page 3, HaMidrash Mea Shana Vestrim Shana Vesheva Shanim. Bas mea la kavas esrim la chait, bas esrim kavas sheva la yofi. Rashi even quotes this medrash. That she is similar at age 100 to 20 for sin. That's when sin starts being accountable. And at 20 to 7 for yofi, which by the way means to say, in terms of innocence or naivete about beauty. Right? That's what the, the medrash is clearly saying. A seven-year-old is not conscious of their beauty. They're not showing it to the world. 
right? So as twenty, she had the same naivete, the same the same perspective on beauty. And the way he explains it is not like I just explained it, but he, that this, this is the way that, to, to perhaps understood in a vacuum, he says that there's a point of growth and a point of stopping growing. So at the beginning, so to speak, 7 is the point of, so to speak, the beginning of growth, and 20 is the end of growth to a certain degree, and so to, uh, what he's saying is that there was a uh, connection between the end of a growth, so to speak, was always a period of growth. That's, so to speak, homiletically with the way he understands this. Another dimension, if we, if we flip over, well, let's see where this is. Oh, it's the, sorry, the bottom of the page. Al-Derach HaMidrash on page 3. Shnei Chayei Sarak Kaminyan Vayiyu Lamed Zayin. The word, the gematria of the word Vayiyu is 37. Why? Kimiyom Shenol Ad Yitzhak Ayom Ha'akedo Lamed Zayin Ha'ayu Ve'heim Ha'ayu Ikar Chaya Shel Sarah. She spent her whole life desiring to have a child. When did she find fruition? When did she find... A, in a certain sense, accomplishment of the, the life and the goals that she had was when she had Yitzhak, which was for 37 years, which means the Torah is conveying to us numerically, not just linguistically, that Vayiyu is her real life, when she really alive, was these last 37 years. Another example he gives, by the way, is Vayachi, the other parasha in Sefer Voracious, which is about the death of an individual which is called by their life, right? So this is the only other time where the word Chaim appears in the name of a parasha and is describing the death of Yaakov, like Chaye Sarah. He says that he says is what, what is uh, take a look at the top of the next page. Fascinating enough, he says Kayotze boy Vayichi Yaakov Eretz Mitzrayim Yudzayin Shana Shvayisrei Shana. He says why? What are the seventeen years? Kishibiras Yosef Mimenu Yudzayin Shana BeMitzrayim Harishoyshin VaArba. He says listen to this. Yosef was born, and when was Yosef abducted or sold by his brothers? At the age of 17. How long did Yaakov Avinu live in Mitzrayim after being reunited with his son Yosef? 17 years. Some total of 34 years. Interestingly enough, that is the gematria, he says, of Vayechi. Which means to say that when did Yaakov really live? Is when he spent time united with the child that he really cared for. The Ben Zukunim of his son at the beginning and the end of his life, so to speak. And the middle years were years of pain. It's fascinating. So again, here is another way the Torah is describing something. So you can see what Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar is doing over here. This is Al-Derech Hadrash. This is second. This is not Pshad at all. But this is, this is the second tier of what the Torah is communicating to us on the more emotional, psychological, spiritual level. Now, let's go to, let's go to the third um, modality that he's going to use. We're going back to the introduction, which is where he says, Haderech Hashlishi, which is underlined in double. Derech HaSeichel. This is the way of, of, the, of the mind or the intellect. I will send my hand. I will send my hand to write about it in certain places. To teach the Torah is including all wisdom. All the other wisdoms are. What's a shifcha? A maidservant. Meaning to say all these other wisdoms are subservient to the Torah. The main point is learning Torah. It happens to be we can also learn out other wisdoms from the Torah. So by the way, in his language over here, how much time does it sound like he is giving to this third dimension? A little bit. He's not dismissing it. Remember the Ibn Ezra commented on this, and the Ibn Ezra totally dismissed this. He says, the Torah is not a science book, it's not a natural history book, we don't need to spend time on this. And he dismisses, the Ibn Ezra explicitly dismisses people like Rav Sajagon as an example. And he dismisses any, many other people who he, who, um, in, in, in his path. 
The Bible does not dismiss anybody. He says, yes, all other wisdoms can in fact be in the Torah. The Torah's point is not to teach us those wisdoms, but it should certainly align itself with those wisdoms. So therefore, he says, at certain times, I'll, I will, I'll reference them. Here's an example. We're not going to spend too long because it's exceedingly complex. But as an example, there's, there's numerous places in the Torah where this is to be found. In, uh, in the, in, uh, on page 4 in source 3, Hashem creates the human being. Hashem blows into humanity this, this breath of life. And he says the following. He goes into a very interesting discussion in source 4. The, the researchers have disputed what exactly is the soul. We used to possess Svarim and Kates. And there's been, you know, un, un, unnumbered books written on this topic. Some say the soul is one unit and it has three different expressions. The instinctual drive of an animal. So it has the, we'll speak, so to speak, the flora aspect, which is the growing aspect, the, the, which, is, which is to be found in, um, sorry, the, the, the natural instinctual desire, the tzomach, which is from the flora world, which is to say the aspect of growth, and the intellectual aspect, so, so to speak, is merging three dimensions of existence, which is the world of flora, fauna, and humankind, and those are the three parts of the soul expressed in three different ways. And he goes on to give various examples and the disputes within this as to what the soul looks like. So over here, he's essentially tipping his hat to the philosophers, right? He's saying, there's lots of books written about this. Here's what it says, but you should note that even though this is a long paragraph, as you can see, this is the end of an even longer essay where he started dealing with this Alderach Abshad, Drash, and Kabbalah beforehand. Okay, so just to be able to understand where he sees this. And numerous times he talks about this. He'll make reference to natural sciences, but as he says, Eshlach Yadi. Well, sometimes I'll diverge to let you know that the Torah wasn't innocent of these truths. But I'm not going to spend so much time on that. That's the third level. And finally, the fourth level. And this is where things get very fascinating as well. We return to our introduction again. We're back on page hey, Bottom of the page, uh, bottom of the page it says 22. Hu the fourth way is the way of God. He says, what does this mean? Um, I'm going to... Oh, I skipped that. <laughs> he says... This is, the, this is the way to find light and li- uh, li- uh, the light of life. I'm going to draw off the, the works of Moshe. So he says, I understand that I'm going to spend a lot of my time drawing off the insights of the Ramban, which, by the way, most people are not aware of is that the Rabbeinu B'chaye is the best explanation of the Ramban, because he was his grand Talmud. So if we come across the Ramban, which is particularly difficult, and even in the Kabbalistic sections, the first place to look is Rabbeinu B'chaye on the same Pasuk, because he's usually the one who expands it. I'll give him just an example quickly, um, just of this, of this, I did not put it into the notes. But there's a discussion at the beginning of Sefer Vayikra. It's a large discussion as to what's the point of Karbonos. Why is they were bringing sacrifices? Why does God want this? So the Ramban famously quotes the Rambam in Morin Nebuchim. The Rambam in Morin Nebuchim says that the nations of the world used to have all these kinds of pagan worship. And we came from Egypt. And because we were influenced by those cultures, the Rambam, Rambam Maimonides says, therefore we bring Korbanos, so to speak, to counteract, 
to re-channel the natural vehicle of service towards the Ribbon Shalom, towards the Almighty. Right? That's what the Rambam says. And many people have questions of the Rambam. And many people also should take a look at the Rambam at the end of Hilchos Me'ila, where he has a different explanation. Or Karbonis, we need, can't look at the Rambam in a single silo. The Rambam is much bigger than that. But nonetheless, the Ramban dismisses the Rambam, respectfully so. And the Ramban himself basically says that Karbonis are a person should see themselves as if they sinned. Therefore, they should be sacrificed. And so vicariously, that individual is seeing this, the loss of life, which to a sensitive individual, an average to sensitive individual, is a rather shocking thing the first time a person <coughs> sees this, that the loss of life of a large breathing mammal in front of oneself is a, very, is a, is a jarring experience. And so one should be imagining that they are, in fact, the, um, uh, the one undergoing this process. And then the Ramban goes off Al-Derech HaEmes, which we learned about is the area of Kabbalah. So what does Rabbi Mechayi do? Rabbi Mechayi just expands what the Ramban says. So he says, yeah, it's, it's true. Let's think about it. In a certain sense, human expression is divided into three areas. There's thought, speech, and action, right? So every sin, therefore, is in one of those domains. Today, we almost completely dismiss the realm of thought. Who cares what I'm thinking, right? What I'm lusting after or indul- indulging in my mind. But yes, the Torah is concerned about what we're thinking about as well. What we think about, what we speak about, what we, what we act. So therefore, when you notice in the Korban, there are three parts of the sacrificial service. There is Semicha, where you take your hand, so to speak, in the realm of action, you put it on top of the, of the animal. You miss Vadeh, you do video, which is confession, which is expressing the mouth. And then, ultimately, he says what you do is you burn, so to speak, the innards, which is reflective of the thought process, the inside of that animal, as a, as a, as a sign to yourself that you need to be controlling or sacrificing these three areas. And, the, and then the Rabbeinu Bechai goes one step further. And he says, you know, that there are four ways that a person can be killed by capital punishment and based in skila, strafa, herek, vechenek, right? Which is stoning, being burnt, um, 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 being decapitated, or by being uh, strangulation. Again, um, for the more details, read uh, Masech Sanhedrin. Um, but nonetheless, it is interesting. So he says, all four of these things are really occurring in the process of sacrifice, where you push the animal down, so to speak, which is the beginning of the skila process. The slicing of its throat is the combination of the chenek and the hereg together. And then ultimately burning it is the strafer, because the strafer wasn't a person on a pyre. It was actually lead going into the person, burning the person internally. So the internal organs are burnt. He says, why? Because a person should be thinking, as terrible as this sounds, yes, maybe I am liable to a certain degree of something of that. So what is the Abraham Ben-Bachaya doing? He's simply expanding what the Ramban says very quickly. The, Ra- the Rabbeinu Bechaya gives extra details too, as an example. There are many other examples, but this is one of them. Um, I would like to give another example of where, Ra- where Rabbeinu Bechaya w- uh, wanders into the world of what he calls Derech Hashem. And he says this, he explicitly says this in perhaps one of the most astounding, astounding Rabbeinu Bechayas I've ever, ever come across. Yeah, let's take a, take a quick look at this. Um, you will never be able to read the story again the same way after Aben Bechaye's interpretation. Here's what he says. This is, the lo- this, is, this is the last level, which is on page 5. He quotes over here, he quotes in source 5, this is the last posuk in Parshas Vayigash. And by the way, Parshas Vayigash is always the, the, the end of the parsha, which really is a little bit of an astonishing stopping point. You know? It's almost like Tanakh is serializing the story and wants you to come back for more, right? Because here you have it. And uh, you have you're the bags. They found the, the gavia in the, cup, uh, in, the, in the backpack of Binyamin. And now they, they say, you know what? We'll all be slaves. And, the, and, the, and this, this Mishneh says, no, don't worry. You, everything will be fine. He'll be a slave. And at this point in time, we're left on the edge of the cliff, or the brink of the cliff, and the parasha ends. 
And, we, and, we, <laughs> and we're on the edge of our seats in Shul. And what is going to happen? What's going to be with Binyamin? How will Yaakov respond? What's going to be? It's, it's, it's the most unusual break, uh, breaking of a parish, which should be noted first of all. This is the last pasuk of Parshas Ayigash. It says the following. Oh, did I, uh, did, I, did I not put it in here? I did not put it in here. It says, uh, it says, uh, says this Mishnah, who the Midrash in, uh, interprets as Menashe, the son of Yosef, but it's, it's the agent of the, of the viceroy. He says, He says, don't worry. You, you know, he'll be a slave of us, and you should return to your father in peace. No problem. Almost like sort of innocently, he knows there's going to be a problem. But he sort of innocently, don't worry, you return in peace to your father. Says Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar, after a number of different tears, he says the following. In a Kabbalistic perspective, now again, this is now he's automatically identifying us that we're in tier four. Okay? This is tier four. Why did the the parasha end in this moment? When Menashe said this, he wasn't talking to them. He was talking to history. And he said, now you're going to go in peace to your father in heaven. And that means to say thousands of years later, Yonah Shamas will come back to this world and they will suffer terrible deaths as they return to their father in heaven because of what you did to Yosef. That's what's happening over here. Wow. Okay, do you understand this? There's a premonition over here to the Asara Haruge Malchus. And whether it means to say, and we know when we, when we read that Kina on Tisha B'av and Yom Kippur, and we talk about the shoes and the pile of shoes, and they go back and they ask, they ask, was this a Gezerah? And he says, Gezerah Himil Fonai, and they accept it. Each of those Neshamas ultimately was a Neshama of, of one of the, the brothers of Yosef. And, interestingly enough, if you think about it, as the Mephoshim explained, what that means to say is that the sin of the generation was still the sin of Yosef. I mean, we're still selling our brothers at that point in time. If you read the history around the destruction of the Second Temple, we were all selling our brothers at that point. Sometimes rightfully so, but we were all selling our brothers. It was the same sin, and the leaders of that generation expressed <coughs> that, same, that same dichotomy. Now, it's interesting. If you do a little bit of a count here, you notice that there aren't ten. <laughs> Why? Let's do, the, let's do the math quickly. For a brief moment, think about this. Yosef, he's not responsible for the sale, is he, right? Because he was sold. Right? Binyamin was not part of the sale. Right? Right? So who, who's he talking to? At this point in time, somebody, somebody is missing. Somebody is missing over here. We don't have all ten brothers. If he's talking to them specifically, one person is missing because Shimon is in jail at this point in time. Right? So, no, sorry. Shimon has been reunited. One second. How does this work? Reuven is excluded. Reuven was not there. How, therefore, does this match up? So we have to look at a little more, a little more, more of Ben Bechayi. Ben Bechayi says later on in the Torah, Yosef never forgave the brothers. Yosef could never forgive the brothers, which meant that the reason why the debt continued was because one of the ten was Yosef himself, the Neshama of Yosef himself, who wasn't able emotionally to let go the pain that was inflicted upon him. Yes, outwardly he did not show revenge. Yes, outwardly he was helped sustain all the rest of the brothers. This is Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar. He was also part of the problem. It takes two to tango. A terrifying thing. When we say Kriya Shema at night, there's a little paragraph beforehand, which is where we relinquish other people from our debts, from the pain that they inflicted upon us. He says it's a very hard thing to do. But Yosef, because he still held on to that pain, maybe even justifiably so, was part of this as well. Terrifying.
This is, this is, this is a, 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 just to give you a sense of the depth of the Rebbe Mechai. You will not see this elsewhere. This, uh, this kind of idea is, is, is completely remarkable. Let's just co- conclude with one last point over here, which is fascinating, which I think most people are unaware of as an example. In section 9, we return to our introduction on page 23 or Vav. He says the following. By the underline on, on the top of the page, it says, Midos. I'm going to begin each book with a pasuk from the book of Midos, or morality, which is, what's he referring to? Sefer Mishnei. Skipping down to, a, to, um, to the next online, he's going to quote, Rabbeinu Yonah had explanation on Sefer Mishlei. So I'm going to start off every parsha with this, which is why, if you open up the Rabbeinu B'chaye at the beginning of each Sefer, Rabbeinu B'chaye will start off the Pasuk in Mishle, the beginning of Sefer Shmois, before he begins his explanation, he starts quoting. He says, Nezim zahav al oizen shamas, and he goes on to explain this Pasuk, and he goes on to explain that entire section in Mishle, with the innuendos of Rabbeinu Yonah, and then he goes into start explaining the, 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 to start explaining the, the book of Shmos. Why is he doing this? What's the point of all of this? Why is he tangentially including this? Clearly, what you see from Rabbeinu Yonah, sorry, from Rabbeinu Bachaye, is he believes that the Torah is meant to refine the human being. And if it's not doing that, we're missing the boat. So therefore, by the way, it's, you know, that, that's what they say by, with Hillel. They say with Hillel, a very interesting thing, and that is, is that... Uh, when the Ger came, that, 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 that person came to Hillel and said, you know, Gary, I'm going to tell him Danny Kotor um, on, on one foot. What did Hillel say? He says, he says, He says, whatever you don't want your friend to do to you, you shouldn't do. And the rest is an explanation. Go and learn it. So I've heard explained that, what does it mean, Iroch Pirusha Zilgumor? Iroch Pirusha Zilgumor means to say that every time when I'm learning Torah, I'm learning, whoa, well, look at that. About the Shehiyon Erev Shabbos, right? How am I allowed to leave the things on the, on the, on the, on the fire on Erev Shabbos? How am I allowed to leave the cholent on the fire? When I finish learning that, I need to understand that that was a pirush of what mitzvah? Of after the Rech HaKamaycha. Irach pirush, meaning to say, I need to be able to understand that everything I'm learning is reflecting itself in my tikkun amidos. And if it isn't, if it's simply an intellectual pursuit, I'm missing the boat. Therefore, he says at the beginning of every passion, I'm going to start with the Mishle and Rabbeinu Yonah. Brilliant way of looking at this. Most people miss this part of, Rabbe, of Rabbeinu Bechaye. And finally, just to conclude, his last line over here in section 10, I know this is a huge, um, a, a, a huge undertaking. Even though I'm a very lowly and insulted spirit, I've had a very difficult life. I've been hurt so much. I've, 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 I, my soul inside of me is pained. He's not able to do this. However, in the end of the day, he says, I'm going to carry on doing this. And he says at the very end, just to, go to, uh, to conclude the very last page, on the very three lines from the end, on the merit of the work I've relied or leaned on, I trusted in Hashem, and I uh, am trying to get closer to him. I want to be a conduit or a chariot vehicle to his honor. 
a very interesting perspective and why he's completely different to anybody we've learned about up to now. Thank you very much for taking the time.